Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back for another uh, episode of Voices of the Valley. I get the uh, privilege of being the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, and we have a terrific guest today. We'll bring him on and then joined, uh, as usual, though, not taking it for granted, but proof that our podcast goes on, whether it's rain, snowed, or sleep, or hail, just like the U.S. mail, is my uh, good friend Candace Wilson. You made it. You were able to join us. You know what? I'm so thrilled to be here because... We have been buried in six feet of snow this week and another, like, this is how accurate the forecast is, between one and five feet of snow coming this weekend. And, you know, there's a significant difference between one and five feet of snow. So I, you know, we're going to be in for a surprise again this weekend, but I'm thrilled to be connected with lights and the internet right now. Well, who knew that podcasting was just like outdoor ag. Lots of things go on. So uh, we're, we're glad you're here. And we're glad to be joined by a special guest today, Adrian Percy, who is now the executive director of the North Carolina Plant Science Initiative. And uh, I gather you that comes with spending a little time in the classroom as well. Adrian, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Candice. Very impressed, Candice, of your dedication to this podcast. Great to be with you guys. Looking forward to this. <laughs> Terrific. Well, and, you know, Candice and I both have to be on our toes because you're a podcaster, too. So uh, if, if we'll we'll be on the alert for if we get out of line. Feel, feel free to, cha- uh, you know, let us know. Yeah, I've got to say, it's kind of weird to be on the other end of the microphone, so to speak. So we'll see how this goes. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how you do. And uh, before we get started, uh, we want to congratulate you on uh, three weeks ago. I, I understand you became a U.S. citizen. I did. Yeah, something I've been thinking about for a long time. My wife is uh, from Raleigh, so she's American. And uh, yeah, I took the plunge and got all the uh, questions right that I was asked. I know a lot about uh, U.S. Uh, constitutional law that I didn't know before. So yes, it's, uh, it's all been done there. Well, you're you're in North Carolina. Do you know the difference between Wolfpack and Tar Heels? That you know that, as you know, that becomes the critical question in states like that. Well, yes, I wear a lot of red these days. I have to say, <laughs> even though I do live in Chapel Hill, which is uh, more of a blue kind of place. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is an awfully pretty blue. But uh, noted, you're with the Wolfpack. And so, speaking of that, tell us about your career journey to what you're currently doing, because uh, in a very positive way, you've got a real checkered past. You've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's true. I, that's one way of putting it. I mean, I, I'm actually from London. You can probably tell from the accent and, you know, obviously I yeah, just uh, took my citizenship here. But, you know, London is not um, one of the agricultural capitals of the world, clearly. And I wanted to get into science and kind of fell into agriculture once I'd done my studies in the UK. I was offered a job in France with uh, a company which was one of those swallowed up in one of those consolidations, a company called Rompelenc, and started there. And that was really my first ever exposure to agriculture. I was, you know, spending time in the Rhone Valley looking at vegetable and uh, tree fruit production. Of course, grapes, very big in France, but also I was in an area that they were growing rice in the Camargue Valley. So started to get my first exposure in Europe, in France, to agriculture, and then have been basically moving around the world ever since. So moved between France, Germany, worked for Bayer for many years, then came across to the U.S. for a couple of um, expatriation cycles met my wife, who's I've mentioned is, is from Raleigh. And then, yeah, now for the last 14 months, I've been at NC State. So I've done a lot of things, um, spend a lot of time with 
early stage ag tech companies, either as an investor or as an advisor or as a board member, and really, really enjoyed that part of our business. Boy, what a terrific vantage point to, you know, all the areas you've been involved in to look at, just kind of that very diverse background. The first thing I'm always struck by, I'll never forget, you know, Bayer uh, has uh, been a sponsor of the center. So we've hung out with Bayer uh, a bit over the years. And I'll never forget, and I don't think this is proprietary, we were just talking about product development. And, you know, he basically said, you know, each time we bring a product to market, it's 10 years and $280 million. And I remember being surprised by that. And uh, so let's start with your kind of your corporate hat first in terms of Bayer. What is involved in the product development cycle in terms of proof of concept and why that length of time and, and that type of thing? Because I think that's important because it'll inform a little bit of the later part of what we'll be talking about is, you know, kind of the as you get this kind of the shift uh, in the IPM world of less chemistry, more biology, and there's going to be a lot of product development. It seems to me this whole product development issue is, I mean, it's obviously always been important, but it, it seems to me it's going to become increasingly important. Why do things take so long? That's well, a great question. And, and you're right. But companies like Bayer, like BSF, like Corteva, like Syngenta, that have basic you know, R&D, innovative discovery work, it does take very, very deep pockets and a lot of patience, a lot of tolerance for risk as well to be in that business. And you're absolutely right with you know, what you said, anything between 10 and 15 years to get a new active ingredient from discovery you know, into the marketplace. And it can cost you know, upwards of $200, $300 million to do that. So the reasons behind it are, are multifold. Uh, one of maybe one of the main reasons is regulation and you know the fact that we all are very attentive to what is used to help grow our food and we want to make sure that these products are safe for humans but also for the environment so there is a, a very large regulatory component doing environmental testing human health testing making sure that these are you know safe products ultimately and then of course there's a long review process and that can take you know several years to get through an epa or a california epa review but prior to all of that regulatory work there's a lot of basic development work that goes on in the field, positioning the product. Of course, agricultural is, you know, we're, we're dependent on crop cycles. Although many companies now choose to do testing both in the Southern Hemisphere and in the Northern Hemisphere to speed up the product development cycle. But this can take several years to really position the product right, to get the formulation working correctly on the right crops, in the right geographies, in the right environments. And then even before all of that happens, of course, you've got the discovery pro process. And that's where... You know, there's a lot of lab work testing literally hundreds of thousands of molecules per year to try to find, you know, a small percentage of those that seem to have some activity and then taking them through the rest of the cycle. And as you go through that cycle, you know, many of these early leads will drop off and disappear. And it's just very, very few that ever make it through. In contrast, I'm curious also, so as we move more into the biological space, what does that product development and testing look like? And what are we anticipating also from a regulatory sort of perspective? Is there any any sort of watchouts of how that process, I guess, should could be getting more complicated? It's a great question. With the biologicals, you've got a much more variety in the type of product you're talking about. It could be a live microbe, it could be a plant extract, it could be a biochemical molecule like an RNA type molecule. And all of those will get treated slightly differently by the regulator. But in general, the process is quicker because the review times are slightly quicker. That's not really what makes the difference. But the packages that you produce for some of these products at least are less, are less in terms of volume, in terms of lengths of testing, because many of these products are, are naturally based and will, by virtue of their chemistry and biology, will, will disappear very quickly from the environment. So there's not a need to do so much testing, although all of them are still tested to a degree. 
And then when it comes to the development time, you know, looking in the field, that's probably not so different from a standard chemical. You know, these products are in some ways even, you know, harder to position because sometimes they do not have, for instance, the same level of efficacy. They can be very, very good pro products, but they're not as easy to test to really bring out their, you know, specialty features and understand how they're going to work in an integrated pest management system. So it takes a long time. And the, and the discovery can be a little bit quicker, but it tends to be also quite long. So, you know, we're not talking about 13 years or 10 years, perhaps, but probably still five to seven years, I would guess, to get one of these products from discovery onto the market. It still takes a while. Interesting. And you're so right also about, you know, when I've been talking to growers, like with the chemistry, you know, if the bug is dead, once you start looking below the, the surface, you know, into the root systems and stuff, there's not always fast indicators, I guess, of how the products are working. And the growers will need to be so much more patient with seeing the value of some of these different products that are coming to market too. So it's not going to be a short-term fix where you can go through a season or two and say, yes, I, I actually visually can see this happening. I guess it depends on the product as well, but they're going to have to be patient with seeing reaping some of the benefits. It does really depend on the product, but you're right. Many of them do not have the kind of knockdown effect that is very visible. I think for many of these products, the secret is to you know treat early to understand, you know, when a disease or an insect is arriving, you know, on your crop in your field and to preventatively treat to, to a degree so that you're controlling before the point when the disease or the insect population really takes hold of the crop because then it can be challenging for some of these products. I know that some products are being offered now that is a combination of a biological and a chemical. So you've got kind of the advantages of both. You've got the knockdown potentially coming from the chemical side and then, and then the longer term control from the biological side. So that's, you know, another way to go that some companies are choosing to take. Question for you. you. You mentioned kind of the dual hemisphere strategy on, you know, the product development and then determining the formulation. Does that hold true with biologicals as well? And in the dual hemisphere, how does that allow you to move quicker? And then the other question on the development or confirmation that, hey, this is going to work. I mean, do soil conditions need to align or is it really more a matter of crop and disease or, you know, pest pressure or that sort of thing? And then you mentioned efficacy. Is the nature of these products where you can create scale that affects cost? Because I know that's one of the things growers are concerned about, obviously efficacy, uh, but, you know, cost is as well, you, you know, because as you know, if you pull one one uh, synthetic out of the toolbox, it's not a one-to-one -one replacement. So, you know, getting the economics right on this, I, I, I know the growers would certainly appreciate it. Yeah. Well, on the dual hemisphere testing, I think it, it holds equally true for, you know, traits that you may be developing, um, chemistry you may be developing, or biologicals. And, and many of the companies have basically mirror images of their testing facilities, north and southern hemisphere, so they can actually test in somewhat similar you know, conditions say in a place like uh, New Zealand or in South Africa or Argentina, in these types of countries. And it basically, you know, allows you then to take the learnings from the Northern Hemisphere trials that may come in after all, and then apply them, you know, to Southern Hemisphere trials that will be basically launched in their spring, which would be after all. So, you know, providing you can get that information out from your, from your Northern Hemisphere trials, you can really go and double your product development cycle by going North and Southern Hemisphere. So that's one strategy that many companies take. But again, that's an expensive thing to do. In terms of cost of goods for the biologicals, I mean, again, I think every company is aware that they have to be competitive, as competitive as possible. They have to show a return on investment to growers for them to you know, use these, these products. You know, there are a number of products which are protein-based or peptide-based or 
biologically based in some other way for which costs will start to fall because we're making tremendous progress in things like fermentation technologies where we can produce these types of biological materials at a much cheaper rate than was previously being able to do. So I see, you know, the price of those biologicals, I think they have to be placed at a competitive price point already. But in terms of, you know, these companies actually being able to, you know, make somewhat of a profit themselves, uh, which is essential for their longevity, I think that will improve over time as these fermentation technologies really advance. One of the things that, you know, as you go through, you know, biologicals, you mentioned that uh, biologicals, there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak, I guess, in terms of what's a biological. It's not necessarily as straightforward on the chemistry side. Is there a big knowledge transfer issue in front of the industry? You know, for instance, do the PCAs, uh, you know, that uh, are working with the growers, are they going to have to go through an education process as well? And and how does that work? Because it seems to me that kind of needs to go hand in hand with this product evolution that's in front of us. Yeah, I think education is going to be enormously important and necessary because basically, you know, for these products in certain cases to be successful, you are going to have to apply them in slightly different ways. And, you know, just expecting the same process that you would normally use for chemistry to work for biological is not necessarily the, the case. And so that will require adaptation on the part of growers and PCAs, as you say, of extension agents that work with growers to educate. I think even within the companies, you know, as many of these bigger companies have moved from focused solely on chemistry to now offering a biological portfolio of products, they've had to train their sales force and they've had to train some of their scientists as well in the field to look at these in slightly different ways. You know, and it's no different perhaps from, you know, the fact that, you know, many growers were very comfortable with using glyphosate for many years, but with weed resistant issues, many have had to adapt to a more complex weed control strategy. And I think it's the same way with biologicals that, you know, they will be part of an integrated system that may involve chemistry, it may involve other agronomic practices, but ultimately in some areas where growers do have real issues in terms of the availability of chemistry or resistance issues, I think they will have to change to a degree. Adrian, I'm curious just about your opinions around sea and spray technology and if you have any insights about how the evolution of the chemistries are coming along. Maybe you can describe even like what exactly are they trying to formulate in terms of does it need to be higher concentration or, or what adjustments do the chem companies need to make to also be enabling this sort of technology? Yeah, I mean, first of all, really excited about sea and spray technology. I mean, the ability to go up and down, identify a weed, and then apply, you know, a very specific treatment to that weed and avoid broadcast spray where possible, avoid some of the issues perhaps with selectivity of a herbicide on the crop. This is, for me, the future. And again, it's going to take some adjustment. But what I'm excited about, again, is the fact that you don't necessarily need a new herbicide if you have seen spray technology. You can start to actually use existing herbicides in different ways, perhaps, maybe in a more concentrated formulation or a combination of herbicides. So you've got the right herbicide on that weed uh, that it's going to knock it down. Uh, so these are really exciting technologies in my view. And, you know, the thought as well of having very selective devices that can maybe move around fields in different ways from what we're used to in the past, you know, getting away from some of the big machinery that we've been using that causes other issues like cell compaction and moving to robots over time that can identify and do the work in a maybe in a 24-7 type of application cycle. I think it's really exciting. Some of this may feel like a little bit space age, but I can tell you there are people working on these ideas and, and looking to bring them you know, to a field near you in the future. Yeah, Dennis knows this about me, but like, this is the sexy part of agriculture. I love this future. When I see something that looks like, um, you know, space age out in the field or at some sort of trade show, I get, 
super excited about it. And I couldn't agree more. Some of these different devices that we've been seeing are pretty impressive. Solar powered, the sea and spray arms, the adjustable, you know, how you can get into the different crops, you know, the systems, the design of the different crops and farms, all super exciting. Yeah. And I've, you know, been in this business for a long time, but I've never seen such an explosion of innovation and technology, you know, coming to agriculture. A lot of it is fueled by, you know, big advances in data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. These will all enable these machines to be effective. If you've got multiple small machines in a field that are swarming, so they're basically coordinating individual machines to go and treat a crop or to weed a field or harvest or to maybe pollinate. There's lots of different opportunities there. And these machines will be smaller and thereby, you know, on an individual base cheaper and have some advantages, you know, as I said, over some of the big machines that are currently more prevalent. You know, Adrian, I'm not sure what order I want to ask the question, but, you know, this issue of uh, technology, you know, it's not necessarily an automatic unless you're conversant with it. We're going to connect technology with crop inputs and that type of thing. But when you think about the tools that are going to be involved in doing that, you know, kind of in a semi-related manner, because I'm going to want you to put your venture hat on in a moment, you know, typically hardware is not necessarily perceived as an attractive opportunity on the investment side, but does the integration of all, you know, whether it's AI, machine learning, disease identification, and, you know, the same, let's say thinner weeder, et cetera, that's going to just perform a weeding function as you kind of build up that data library, does all of a sudden that unit, because now you've diversified its purpose in the field, get more attractive on the venture side? Uh, so we can accelerate, you know, the necessary hardware to get stuff done on the farm, because the more automated it is, the better it will be. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And some of these, you know, more mechanical devices, perhaps for a venture capitalist, might not be always so sexy and investable. There's a lot of capex that goes into these kind of things. But I think, as you say, the more integrated machines where they, perhaps you even have a platform like units that can do multiple things in the field, you know, incorporating some of these algorithms that have been developed through artificial intelligence or machine learning can be very, very interesting in terms of their capabilities. I mean, as you said, you know, we're working at NC State on a lot of technology around early disease detection, trying to see diseases before they're visible to the naked eye. And that can involve, you know, taking DNA samples in a field that you can read whether the pathogen is present on your smartphone. It could involve small detection units that can detect different chemistry, which is released by the plant when it's under stress. It could be machines which are actually circulating, you know, within the field and collecting data. So there's a lot of different opportunities there, you know, to develop devices which are very, very useful for growers and thereby, I think, interesting for those that want to invest in those types of technologies. Question for you. And even though I was a, a grower shipper, I always tell folks, you know, I was more of the sales and marketing type. And, you know, then the field would come in and tell me, guess what? You've got aphids or you've got downy mildew. And can you get at certain things? earlier than we currently do? Because, you know, like if you look at the lettuce situation that we've had to deal with in the Salinas Valley, the INSV, it happens when it happens. I I mean, you know, one of the things I hear is you don't see it coming until it comes. So, you know, how does this early disease detection work per se? And is it more geared towards just a couple of key things or can it just, you know, kind of provide a kind of an APB all points bulletin for, you know, most of the things growers are going to be worried about? Now, I think it's an integration of knowledge and technology and then providing valuable insights to growers. And so I do think it's possible and likely over time that growers will get much more information earlier about what could potentially be, you know, occurring on their fields. So as an example, you know, there are technologies out there which are collecting spores from the atmosphere 
of Asian soybean rust that is moving around in Brazil and Paraguay and places like this. And they're sending blooms up into the air. They're understanding from those spore collections and the weather patterns that are likely to occur, where those spores will land, in which fields, and then they can provide growers with advice on how to preventatively spray a fungicide. But equally in crops like tomatoes, which we work on, we work on sweet potatoes, that's one of our big crops here in North Carolina. You know, we're trying to understand equally using other technologies and an understanding of weather patterns, you know, when those diseases are going to arrive and, you know, looking to provide decision support tools for growers through that, through that effort. I'm curious, what do you think are the most exciting technologies? If you look over the next five years, what's going to be, game changer might be an exaggeration, but what technologies do you feel like are on the verge of this is really going to make an impact on our industry? And then second, what are kind of the limiting factors right now? If you think of like significant hurdles of if we just got this aspect, I'm making this part up, but the visual imagery needs to be get from here to here and then that unlocks something. Is there anything like that that exists today that's kind of the major barrier to making a big rush of technologies coming? Those are big questions, Candice. <laughs> How long have you got? So I think in terms of exciting technology out there, I mean, I'll speak very generally. I think two areas. I think, you know, new biotech tools for our crops Gene editing, many people have heard of this technology now. It's in a way that perhaps GM in the past was unable to do because of public perception and because of restrictions from a regulatory standpoint. But gene editing in all manner of crops is going to be a really exciting opportunity because I think, you know, the ability using those tools to enhance shelf life or taste or texture or smell, aroma, attractiveness of the product, I think will have benefit for you know consumers and growers alike. So that's one area. But I think the second area is far more general. It's just big data and data science. And all of these technologies which are being enabled by the fact that we are able now to collect huge, huge amounts of data to integrate it and to have learnings from it. And then, you know, have machines that are basically intelligent enough to do things for us that, you know, in the past they couldn't do. So I think these are the kind of two areas for me which are, are really, really exciting. I think in terms of hurdles, there's a few. I think one is very simple, and probably in California, you know this better than anybody, it's the diversity of our agricultural system. You know, no two farmers are the same, no two fields are the same, and we have such a plethora of crops that technologies have to be, to a degree, tailor-made to the crop and to the environment that they are grown in. And that makes, you know, tremendously complex, you know, when you are building these machines. And here in North Carolina, we are very, very diverse as an agricultural state. We have, you know, over 100 commodities ourselves. So maybe not as many as you guys in California, but still many, many crops. And, you know, we see that, that challenge because many of our growers grow multiple crops and uh, it's not always easy for them to, you know, adopt a technology because they need something that's broader in its application. That's another area. I think also the fact that, you know, some of these new decision support tools are complicated for growers. You know, I've just come from an AI thought leaders breakfast that we had here at NC State talking about you know, how the upcoming generation is being educated on things like AI that will be integrated into their lives and they'll be very familiar with it, just as, you know, my kids today are very familiar with using, you know, games and, and playing with their thumbs as opposed to what I did when I was young. So that's great for those kids, but I think for our current generation who's, you know, in the fields, as it were, who's doing the work now, making these tools more user-friendly, more easy to manipulate and more easy to see their value is going to be really, really 
important. And I think, you know, the companies that are designing these tools really need to think about making, you know, user-friendliness kind of top of their list of needs because if, you know, growers do not have the time to play around with a whole bunch of data and try to make a you know, head nor tail of it. They, they need something, you know, relatively easy to understand and reliable and that provides a good return on investment. And I think that's where, you know, the companies who are developing these tools really need to, to think hard about. Question for you. You mentioned AI, and this is just a bit of a quick detour. You know, as we record this, uh, we're within a couple of weeks of the uh, New York Times reporter who was, uh, you know, visiting with, I, I think it was, you know, a Microsoft product on AI. And, uh, you know, and that seemed, you know, that idea that uh, AI inevitably leads to uh, HAL in 2001 of Space Odyssey. As I begin to understand AI, it seems like it's an awfully good fit for agriculture. I mean, I don't see any buyer beware in terms of AI and agriculture. Am, am I thinking right? I believe I'm with you. I believe so. I mean, I feel that, yes, of course, you can start to imagine all of these scenarios of machines taking over the world, et cetera, et cetera. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think AI is limited in many respects about what it can do. But I do believe that AI is perfect for ag. I think, you know, as an industry, perhaps we've lagged a little bit behind some other industries in terms of adopting some of these digital tools. Again, I feel it's about the diversity and of our of our agricultural systems that does not always enable it. But I think as we move forward, they will certainly be it will certainly really, really be important for ag and that we'll see a lot of these kind of um, technologies being used by growers to their advantage. And, and I think it will be something in 10, 20, 30, 50 years that you know, we don't discuss any more about the dangers, but we discuss about all the benefits that we get. Put on your venture hat a little bit, you know, because on the surface, you know, kind of getting back to the biologicals, I mean, you've just really laid out a lot of exciting technology and, you know, the integration of all of that is going to lead to, you know, kind of a great leap forward. But, uh, you know, on the surface, the uh, shift from chemistry to biology, you know, in theory, that meets the disruptive criteria that the venture crowd likes. But on the other hand, because of the length of time for product development, the regulatory environment, you know, in your mind, you know, what are the issues in terms of de-risking the future to whatever degree is possible, even though, you, you know, there's, you know, nothing's 100%. And then the other thing is, and this this is just, you know, kind of one of those glittering generality observations, as I've kind of observed the ag tech scene of late, you know, it seems like the venture crowd maybe needs to get a little more familiar with agriculture on the ground rather than the company they're funding that's walking in and saying, hey, here's the addressable market. You know, because sometimes the addressable market in a 250 will just get you a venti coffee at Starbucks. It may be big, but everyone's just throwing money at the category, you know. And it seems to me that's kind of one of the, uh, and we're part and parcel of that. I mean, I think we have to do more to reach out to the investor community and go, look, we need to help you get better squared away with here are the facts on the ground, because specificity in agriculture is really critical. So how do you de-risk and how do you better evaluate? So I think in terms of evaluation, you need to have input from those that farm or know those who farm. And that, I think, is absolutely critical. And I, there are, you know, a large number now of ag food funds who have real expertise and knowledge, and even some farmers who are investing themselves. And I think, you know, these kind of funds are, are ones to look out for because they do have a much more precise appreciation of, you know, how technology is deployed and, and how it can be scaled up, you know, to a considerable degree. And I, I've been lucky to work with some of those funds and some of those growers and, you know, seeing growers in California, I know, but also in places like Brazil, many growers now are, are investing in new technology to try and get ahead of the game, but doing it with that kind of knowledge of how it will be deployed and how it would fit their farming as they do it today. So that, that's really important. I think in terms of de-risking, uh, again, 
I think, you know, field data is so important. It, it really is uh, difficult sometimes because you've got to wait for the crop to get in the ground, to get out of the ground, to get the data. But it's so important, I think, to have some degree of proof of concept in the field on the crop that you're interested in, as opposed to perhaps, you know, limiting all your experience and your hopes and dreams on lab data or greenhouse data. So, you know, getting in the field and testing these things out, that's where the de-risking really happens. Shifting the focus to global conversations. How do you think or how would you rate the global industry and collaboration and working together? How do you think the information sharing is, how do you feel like all of that is going? Because surely like the challenges don't just exist in California and, you know, our supply, we all depend on each other with similar issues. So how are we doing? I think it's a mixed bag. So um, I think in general, I would agree with you. Collaboration is so key. I mean, there's so many challenges that growers face. We have so many challenges as a planet in terms of the environmental issues that we're facing, and also in terms of food security. And, and we, you know, we're blessed to a degree here in the U.S. We have a very good, safe food supply, even if there are food deserts in certain parts of our country. But many countries do not, you know, enjoy that. And things like the Ukraine war, we're seeing, you know, the ramifications of uh, disruptions in global food supply, what that can mean for you know developing countries. So there's a lot to do, and I think industry, academia, and other associations, policymakers coming together to try to solve all of these issues is really important. What I see on the ground, I, you know, I, I do believe that you know many of those things happen. That uh, universities where I'm working now, we firmly believe in collaboration. We are doing our very best to collaborate with industry in every situation that we can. That can you know lead to benefits where we share knowledge. It can also lead to, you know, more impact on the ground because uh, essentially they will be commercializing some of the science that we, you know, develop. And we, we'd love to see that. We want to see our technology in the hands of growers and industry is the conduit for that. So there's a lot of collaboration going on. I think, you know, if you look at the ag tech world, I mean, many people look to the US. You know, there are many other places, though, that are developing very interesting ag technology, places like Israel, Australia, New Zealand, many parts of Europe. And the opportunity for us in the U.S. is to adopt some of those technologies and, you know, to the benefit of our growers. And we are seeing many of those companies looking to the U.S. as the first market for their products. And the reason for that is because of the size of the U.S. market and also of the predictable nature of our regulatory system. Many people I know complain about the EPA, but in fact, the EPA is almost the gold standard in many ways in terms of regulation uh, globally. And, you know, for instance, you know, in Europe, you know, we talked about 13 years at the start of the podcast, but it takes a lot longer to get a product registered in, in Europe. And so companies look to the US as for that first market opportunity. Question for you, when you kind of set it up, you know, going to your bio at, at NC State, and as you just said, you look to be collaborative with the private sector, wherever you can, is there kind of a shift taking place? Does a lot of the R&D already exist in the private sector? And does that mitigate or, you know, maybe slightly alter the nature of relationships with universities and the research? Is it Because I guess my question is, is it a little harder for research to get into the marketplace because there is so much activity on the R&D side in the private sector? Yeah, I believe we're codependent because, you know, the R&D going on in the private sector is very focused in certain areas at scale. And to be honest, we don't try to replicate, you know, what the Bayers and the St. James are trying to do, we, we try to complement them because, you know, they are, we, for instance, work in different crops from them. We work on different types of technology than they traditionally have focused on. And we work on, you know, a lot of basic science that will, you know, form the basis for, for instance, the next set of biotech tools that will be embraced by industry. So, you know, we're working in adjacent areas 
but it does make sense on occasion for us to come together and work on a, a common project, you know, particularly a project that's perhaps approaching the market where we've done some of the risking ourselves and then we're looking for an industry partner to scale it and take it forward. And so that's really how we see it. You know, I think it's very important that we continue to fund academic research. I would say that, of course, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we cannot rely just on, on the big industry companies. They would say the same thing because they're so focused on a chemistry portfolio or a biological portfolio or a seed and trade portfolio. We're working between those and around those. And our science will become, perhaps in 10 years or 20 years in some case, will become the next generation of products that will be taken up by industry. And so we, we really serve an important process and a part of the process from, from that perspective. You know, Candice, I'm going to ask a dangerous question. You know, one, I sometimes like to ask our guests, did we miss anything you want to tell us? But I'm, I'm going to couch it with, you know, since you're in the podcasting business too, did we miss anything? And what, uh, you know, I guess kind of final words, because as Candace alluded to earlier, some of the topics you brought up, we could talk about hours on end, but we don't get to do that. But uh, I think we've touched on a, a lot of highlights. Anything though we didn't really get to that you'd would kind of want to impress about on folks as, as they kind of think about the future? Well, the first thing I'll say, Dennis, is I've realized through this process, it's a lot harder to be asked the questions than to ask the questions. <laughs> and so I will be very attentive to that next time I do a pod. <laughs> okay. So if this is hard work, I'll need to lie down after this. But uh, no, in terms of what we covered, I think, great. <laughs> I mean, thing, the one thing I would, I would add, in terms of collaboration, Candice, that you asked about, I mean, the initiative that I'm working under is what we term an interdisciplinary initiative. And that it means collaboration, but not just collaboration within a scientific area. It means working across multiple scientific areas. So our agronomists and our plant biologists work with engineers and, and software engineers and data scientists to come up with new ideas and new technologies. And I believe, you know, that will be essential moving forward. You know, it's, it's great to have deep science in one area, say plant pathology. But if you want to bring something to a grower, it's going to have to be a machine where a plant pathologist and an engineer and a data scientist all collaborate to build that, that tool for that grower. And so, you know, when we talk about collaboration, I think working across science and bringing people in from outside of agriculture to help us solve some of the issues that we know we have is going to be really paramount for our success moving forward. And that's like it. That. <laughs> well, you know, I'm uh, disappointed. We'll eventually put in a plug for our uh, biological summit in Salinas, June 2021. And I know you're, you're going to be traveling, but uh, that sounds like a pretty interesting panel to get together a, a plant pathologist, a data scientist, and an engineer around this topic. So thank you for that. So even though you won't be here, you, we, <laughs> you'll be here in spirit because you, you inspired you. that. I actually do have one last thing, and then we're going we're gonna to let you go, and we'll let Candice to get back to dealing with the elements. You know, I noticed in terms of your, your new role, you know, food security you touched upon, but that idea of also conserving the environment and supporting rural community development, you know, this goes part and parcel of keeping... Uh, vibrant ag-oriented communities, uh, you know, healthy and, uh, you know, contributing to financial stability on a go-forward basis. So it seems to me it's important work. Do you get involved in uh, or with organizations or collaborate along those lines? And then how does the whole biological new inputs uh, affect the environment? And I promise that'll be our last question, unless Candace has one. That, that's another big question, Dennis. I mean, I would say one area that we're particularly interested in right now that I feel is, represents an enormous opportunity for agriculture is carbon sequestration in the soil. So, you know, as we, I think, know, you know, from a carbon emissions perspective right now, agriculture is a net emitter, but I think it can be a net mitigator of climate change. And I think this will be something that does offer opportunities to growers. So we are involved in 
a lot of projects around soil health, making soil healthier, more productive, but also the ability of soil to, to sequester more carbon and remove it from the atmosphere. And working on a lot of different technologies from microbes through to machines that can do that. And so that's one area that I feel will bring ultimately money and resources into rural communities, into the hopefully the pockets of farmers over time. And it's very, very important that we, you know, continue to work on that area. Because Candice, you've just experienced snow. I've just experienced here in North Carolina the hottest February day that we've ever had. We're 85 degrees. I mean, this is crazy. On the same day, there were blizzards and uh, all kinds of things going on in California. And we're on the beach. So, you know, something in terms of climate change, I think it's going to be important that we, we embrace some of these technologies and use agriculture as a way of moving society forward in that area. Perfect wrap-up. Yeah, no, but that was good. Uh, you know, Adrian, we have a new protocol I thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, the conversation was every bit as uh, stimulating as I thought it would be. And I know I made a lot of notes and I will copy shamelessly or be a good parrot as some of the things you said on a go go forward basis. And uh, so we really appreciate your time. We know you're busy. And then I let Candace wrap everything up and I'll have her do that again. As long as she promises, we'll come back and do it again next week. You know, I'll be back. That will be a very tough interview to top, though. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your perspectives. Certainly, our audience will be delighted. And just a reminder to all of the Voices of the Valley followers, don't forget to like and subscribe to us. Candice, thank you. Adrian, thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in Ag Technology, Food Safety, and Plant Science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.